Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a frigid fall day in the mountains of Utah. This week I have something a little different for you, a special two-part episode in which I chat individually with a pair of co-authors, R.A. Salvatore and Erica Lewis, for the launch of their new book, Color of Dragons. First up is Erica Lewis. Erica is a former television producer who has written novels for multiple age groups. Her debut, Game of Shadows, the new released Color of Dragons, and the upcoming Kelsey Murphy and the Academy for the Unbreakable Arts. She's also written extensively for comics. We chat about an author's relationship with their editors, working with a giant of the field like Bob Salvatore, her previous career in TV, and the importance of getting out of the house as a work-from-home creative. Enjoy my conversation with Erica Lewis. Do you feel like your creative life is kind of punctuated by getting to travel as part of your creative process? You know, it's funny. I would say some, it's some, some level, but I actually feel like I, I know people have been saying they've had very little energy, you know, to write or do stuff during the pandemic. Um, but I've, I've actually been pretty, pretty good about that. Um, the hardest part has been getting away from my kids and my dog and my, my husband's been really good, but, but our dog is, she's so cute. She's only two, but she's so high maintenance right now. And she just like, <laughs> whines outside my door whenever I close it. Um, oh. <laughs> but, but for me, the travel was the best part in many ways, sort of the reward after you've written something. I mean, like you, you've written so many books and you get out there and you finally meet people who've read them and you're like, you have that moment of, Oh yay! You read the book. You like it, whatever. In that way, and and you don't get any of that. I mean, you do online, but it's a totally different experience. And um, I have been going to Comic Con just regardless of having something or there or not, even for work. Um, when I worked in television for so many years, I've just always been in San Diego Comic Con and New York, and so that's been really hard. You know? Yeah. I was thinking about how like you and I met at Tucson Festival of Books and and I feel like a lot of my professional friendships have come about of getting to travel, getting to go places where I I might not have been before and meet interesting and cool new people. Yeah, particularly when you're an author, because I feel like we are in our own little offices, spaces, right? And the only time we interact with human people, with other people, is when we go to these conventions and we meet other people who are doing the same thing. And it's nice because there's there's a there's a wonderful camaraderie in that. And Mm -hmm. um, I feel like during the pandemic, that's something I miss a lot because we used to, I had a, a little group that would also go write together to get out of our house at a coffee shop. And that we, we got it back about, I don't know, two months ago. And then all of my friends moved. Oh, <laughs> man. So I'll come up and visit you and we can go write somewhere. Just so sad. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, that's that's killer. You know, like the whole man when you create like a really good group of friends and then everybody moves. I've I've had that happen a few times in my life, and it's just like I keep in touch with all those people, and you know, having things like Slack and Zoom and stuff like that, it makes it so much easier to keep in touch. But yeah. Yeah. It's still kind of heartbreaking, you know? Oh, it's horrible, especially when it comes to like, it's hard to create in a vacuum and without feedback. And, and once you get into the publishing, you know, you have an editor and you have things that, that have been sold. It's harder to just, you can't call your editor and just bounce stuff off to them, off of them all day. And so it was so nice to have other people that were working on similar kinds of things and, and world building. And I mean, you know, when you're building these crazy things to be able to bounce crazy ideas that come to you off of someone and or direction changes uh from like an outline you've done and then you know now it's all over text message or phone calls and it's just not the same yeah (laughs) that's interesting do you do you uh your relationships with like your editor and your agent and things like that are they do they tend to be more kind of like friends that you guys chat quite a lot and uh, kind of, uh, you feel a little bit more collaborative and things like that. It depends upon the editors, you know. Um, I yes, typically with the New York publishers, you know, I've been working with Harper Collins and Rand and uh, McMillan um, most of the time, and both of them, my editors are just busy. You know, yeah, I I can um, I can bounce stuff off of them, but, um, it takes a while to, you know, if I schedule a call, but they have a lot of other books too. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're great once I can get them on the phone, which, you know, they're always happy to do. It's not that they won't do it. It's just a, you know, the, the, the number of people at the publishing business seems to be shrinking yet their workload seems to be growing. Right. And so you're, you're constantly in a cycle of, Hey, you know, um, ironically, with the with the comics and graphic novels, because I, I write those as well, I can do a little bit. I can ping them a morning and be like, hey, can you hop on a call tomorrow? It's a little easier. It just takes a little longer um, with my other editors. But, yeah, they're friends. I mean, f- ironically, my editor um, on my middle grade novel, she and I went on a writer's retreat together many years ago. Oh, so yeah. Sort of a funny thing that she ended up being the editor uh, on that series. So I was like, oh, this is great. Because she wasn't the acquiring editor. That editor left and then she took over. So it was really kind of That's cool. Because I I hear various people say different things about their relationships with the people they work with in publishing. Yeah. And I'm like, my professional relationships have always been, they're very warm relationships. But it's like we talk maybe once every six to 12 months. You know, it's, yeah, we'll, we'll talk for 45 minutes every very so often. And, and I know some authors who are like, oh, yeah, my editor is my best friend. You know, we, we talk every week and, you know, things like that. <laughs> and I, I find that yeah. it's kind of fun, I think. I don't think I'm jealous of it because I, I, like, the, I like the amount of kind of wor- uh, work that goes into, you know, once every six to 12 months sort of things. Yeah. But I think it is cool that some people are able to kind of foster that. A very close relationship with kind of a creative partner. Yeah. And and it kind of depends upon the project too. So I don't know. I mean, like like on my, on the agent side, my agent, she's great, but she's, she's not really an editorial agent. She'll give me some notes back. I know a lot of people have these big editorial agents who do a whole pass before it even gets to the, the editors, but, but my agent doesn't typically do that. And with, um, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's helpful to have a few passes at things, 
the graphic novel side of things, my editor, I, um, I have a new project that I've been working on with uh, Vault, which hasn't really been announced yet, but I, I'm sure I can just say I'm working on a project with Vault. Um, and uh, this is an editor who I worked with at the beginning of my writing career, a, a long, like, I don't know, six or seven years ago at a, at a totally different publisher. Um, and sort of we've come back around and we're so excited because we're getting to work together again, but it's different. Like we get on the phone and we chat and then, you know, so our, my, I'm anticipating doing things more, you know, one chapter at a time because it's a graphic novel and you're setting up the artwork. It's, it's a different process with prose. I feel like, you know, you got to get that draft down. You got to get the first draft out. And then for me, I go back into the weeds and that's where I really, um, with my editor sort of you know, beef it up and, and change things around. So that's when I get those 45 minute long conversations. Once I've done the work, I don't know about you. <laughs> From what I understand with uh, kind of uh, comics and graphic novels, uh, anything that you're working with an artist and you have to coordinate a lot, uh, from what I understand, it just requires a lot more of that kind of collaborative you know talking every day or two or you know a few times a week or whatever to try to figure out how everything works together yeah it does because you you're creating a vision of things um you know ultimately though i love the um surprise element when it comes to that so if you're working on a project mm -hmm. you write x amount and then you pass that off to your editor who passes it off to the artist and they sort of you collab a lot initially on on the design and the look, you know, um, typically artists do character designs and then they put together, you know, um, we give them a little bit of um, information on kind of what we see. But if you give it, I feel like if you give an artist too much uh, information, then it's it stifles them. And I really love to see the craziness that they come up with because that's what, what makes something unique. And so... Um, yeah, there is that, but then, um, you also want to give them some freedom. So like I typically do what I'm going to do. And unless it's going to totally change a scene, um, if somebody's looking facially, emotionally the wrong way, character wise, or, um, I'll go, will you go back and you do a pass on the dialogue to adapt to what they want to do with the art a little bit so that it's sort of, it is a collab, but it just takes a, a, a an extra pass, I think, but it's worth it because the, the, the artist needs some freedom in that. But I don't feel like I personally like to sit on top of the artist or talk to them every week. I think it's more of a, um, they get theirs done. They send us sketches. You give them a little bit of feedback and then, and then they can, they can go for it. So it's almost for you. It's more like two professionals working on the same project separately. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Definitely. At least that's the way I feel. I always feel like it. it is because you're bringing two different visions of something. And yeah, I mean, to me, it's a complete partnership. It always, you know, the, the art is just as important as, as the words and, and sometimes even more in some ways. Oh, that's so. cool. Now you are um, probably when this goes out, uh, it'll either be the week of or, or maybe the week before you've got a, a new book coming out. Speaking of collaborations uh, with R.A. Salvatore. Yeah. Um, which I really wanted to ask about because I think that's stupidly cool. Um, so tell me, where does working with Bob Salvatore come from? Okay, so we uh, so for a history, we met um, when I was working in television. 
I actually can't remember how long ago it was. I want to say it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years ago, maybe. Um, I was working at a company called Fireworks. Uh, they did shows like Andromeda and Mutant X and... Um, uh, they had done the original La Femme Nikita on uh, Sci-Fi, the the one on there. Um, and um, I was working in development. It was one of my first jobs. And I was like, we need to option Forgotten Realms. And they were like, what? And I was like, because the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out. And I was like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get into this. This is what we're going to And they indulged. And we went and we actually got the license back in, back in the day to do them. Um, and... I wanted to make sure that there was authenticity and, and uh, somebody who really knew the world, because obviously I had read Bob's books. I had read a number of the books, but I wanted to make sure that it had a, a real connection between the readers and what we were developing. And um, I was lucky enough to go up to Gen Con and get to meet Bob and some of the other authors. And I was like, you know, I really want to work with you. And um, so he flushed it. He worked with us uh, on uh, developing it. Unfortunately, at the time, Tribune was our partner and um, uh, they could only pick up one of two shows and that one didn't get picked up at the time, which in hindsight, they were like, oh, but whatever. <laughs> um, I, everything, you know, TV is so fluid. It, it I moved on to another job at a different studio shortly thereafter. But, um, but Bob and I stayed in touch and um, after, I don't know, almost 15 years of developing everybody else's stuff, I decided I wanted to write my own. He's always been very encouraging. And so, um, this happened, this particular book happened because, um, I guess it's technically a production company, Temple Hill, uh, approached, um, Bob about, um, a, a this YA novel, this story. Um, we adapted the story a lot and edited a lot. And he came to me and he's like, do you want to do this together? And I was like, yeah, I mean, of course. Um, so we, we got into the weeds and um, that's sort of how it happened. And uh, so it's sort of a, it's been a, a really interesting collaboration with, you know, HarperCollins and, and Temple Hill and the two of us, um, working together for the first time, but, um, you know, hopefully everybody likes it and it's come out well. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's very cool. So, so then is the, is it an idea that came from a third party? Sort of. It was, um, yes and no. What ended, what it was, was they had talked about doing what they called a sort of a YA dark ages story. Mm -hmm. And in it, uh, there were, there were thoughts down there, but, we came in and, and put our stamp on what it was. In other words, I studied uh, abroad in the UK for, for a while and um, am a huge, let's call it mythologies, European mythologies, because there's Irish and the Scottish have their own. Everybody has their own and Welsh and you can call it Celtic mythologies, but that's, that's a big umbrella. Um, and so when they were talking about this, um, this some of the storyline is very similar to what they were talking about us doing with two people in different careers, sort of right one at the top and one rising star. Um, and uh, but we sort of turned it on its head because one of the things that I I was talking to Bob about when I was reading it, I was like, you know, everybody always talks about we understand from legend and lore what happened to King Arthur and Merlin and sort of the end of magic in Wales. But nobody's really 
told the story a a fictitious story a legend in its own uh my its own story anyway of the birth of magic in wales where where did this come from i mean obviously there's the historical element of it and you know how it came you know different places that it came from and and from ireland and from you know but when you come to like the fictionalized version of it this so that's so we went back and we we worked with temple hill and sort of pitched them it was it went back and forth it was a bit it was a partnership it was this is what we want and and okay this is what they want and everybody sort of got their hands in it and then and then the writing started um and uh and our editor Kristen Pettit at HarperCollins is amazing and she's been really helpful uh throughout the process and so it was just it was fun and it was uh there's a the book is written uh, Maggie's point of view is first person and Griffin's point of view is is close third um, and it was funny because Bob was like, I don't know about first person, you know what I mean? So, we're, yeah. he, and I'm like, no, I got, we, we have to. And so I, Maggie's in first person and, and Griffin is in close third and people wonder why that's why <laughs> it was sort of, it was, it was actually, uh, I think Paul Lucas, his agent's idea is like, cause he was like, ah, and I'm like, okay, you do Griffin in third and I'm going to do Maggie <laughs> in first and it's going to be fine. It'll be fun. So So did it, did it essentially come out to one of you writing each of the two point of views? Um, yes and no. I mean, I would take a pass on, you know, Bob's we're, we were both under deadline for other things as well. And so to say that I wrote Maggie and then he wrote Griffin and we traded them back and forth would be not exactly the way it happened. Sometimes I would write, you know, a chunk and then pass it to him. He would edit the chunk and then pass it back and and add, you know what I mean? So it right. didn't really happen exactly, you know, back and forth on every chapter. Um, but the, there's definitely, you you know, it, you know, it was funny because I was reading the Publishers Weekly review of it today. And, and um, uh, at the end of it, it said, you know, it called it breathless, which is lovely, and, <laughs> and, uh, and brutal, which I was like, really? <laughs> to me, I you know, it didn't seem all that brutal to me. Um, but it, it, you know, that that's that's kind of the mixture of the, the two of our kinds of writing together. And so I think there's a lot of each of us in this in that way. That's really cool. 
because on one end of the spectrum, you have a true collaboration, which is two people doing pretty much equal amounts of work. And then on the other end of the spectrum, and often this happens when you have the really huge, often like the crime novelists and stuff. Oh, sure. It's, it's, you, you've got like one massive author and then they've basically just farmed their name and their world out to the other author. Yeah, that's not, that's not what happens here. But it's true. Yeah, you're like uh, we shouldn't say their names. But there's a lot of authors who have like 20 books who come out in a year that are on every shelf. And you're like, how did they do that? And yeah, no, no, we this was truly a collaboration. And, you know, it, it was intimidating to... You know, there's nothing harder than passing someone as, as in, incredibly talented as Bob, your chapters, and be like, okay, here you go, here's my path, you know, so. Well, and he's been, he's been kind of such a presence in the, the epic fantasy world, because oftentimes when you get, when you get people that do a lot of like intellectual property work, their name is kind of eclipsed by whatever intellectual property they're working for. But Bob Salvatore is one of those people that came through the other side of that, where his name is almost bigger, like than all the work he's done individually. Well, I, I think so. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's kind of wild. Yeah. The, kind of within the ecosystem that we work in. Uh, it's kind of cool to, to see that sort of thing. And yeah, and I imagine that would be a little intimidating. Yeah, it was nerve-wracking, especially the, but you know, he had read, um, Game of Shadows, my first novel that came out. Um, and I think, I think after that he was like, okay, at least she can write. I mean, you know, like there's this moment where he was like, yeah. oh, this was good. Cause I'd call be like, so how's it going? Cause it was just so nerve-wracking, you know, to give anyone, honestly, whenever you give anyone, um, even if it's just a kid who's reading your book, you know, uh, my daughter during the pandemic, oh, it was so, I was so nervous because, um, they told us we were going to get, um, uh, uh, arcs, galleys for the, for color of dragons. And my daughter came down, she's 17 and she was like, can I have one of the color of dragons? And I was like, why? And she's like, well, I wanted to read it. And I was like, really? Cause she's never asked to read anything of mine because I was like oh okay that's really nerve-wracking I mean having your kids read your stories and so I was like okay she's a really fast reader so like I don't know two or three days later I was like so how's it going (laughs) and she was like I loved it I was like okay okay good okay good it was almost as bad as giving it to Bob um (laughs) but yeah I it was it was the first time so I think I don't know about you I mean don't you have those moments oh yeah yeah i um i've got a uh, a group uh beta reading my next book right now uh and they've got they've got for just like another two weeks i think until they need to get it back to me so i can do copy edits and everything but honestly like i kind of surreptitiously check the spreadsheet that they put all their comments into every day because i just there's part of me that's like what do they think do they hate it do they love it like and, you know, it's a dozen people. And so I, I kind of like freaking yeah. out a little bit about it every day, but trying not to think about it. Yeah. I mean, I think when I think sometimes people think we're impervious to those things, but we. Oh, not at all. And we're so connected now. Like, you know, you can look on Goodreads or look on Amazon or look on whatever to find your reviews. And, you know, that was one thing Bob's like, stop checking reviews. Like, it's like, why do you not look at reviews? I'm like, you want to see what people think of stuff because it hurts when they don't like stuff. But you let it go. I mean, 
my husband is really funny because he said something about uh, I used to work in real estate and he uh, his old boss was talking about houses and he'd say when they were selling stuff and he said, oh, there's a I, excuse me for saying if this is a curse word, there's an ass for every toilet seat. Right. Somebody's going to want that house, no matter what it looks like, it's going to be. And I feel with books, it's a very personal thing, too. Like not everybody likes the same TV shows. Not everybody likes the same books. And especially, you know, when it comes to writing a YA fantasy, which, you know, which is different than Bob's traditional adult audience. Um, You know, I was like, okay, well, I just hope that they don't they like it so i i mean i think so far it's been so good you know we'll find out after october 19th well because it's it's kind of it's really hard to tell until kind of you see sales numbers and you know sometimes a lot of people don't like breaking it down that way because it's so kind of uncomfortably callous but but it is true because you can get you can get horrible reviews and then sell 10,000 books your first week or or the opposite you get great reviews and sell you know 200 yeah I don't know. too many great reviews maybe it's a maybe maybe it's kind of like winning an oscars people say after you win an oscar you never get another job uh, yeah it's kind of like that i mean <laughs> uh yeah i don't know i i think um i think the nice thing about this story in is that it it we really wanted it to stay young adult. You know, it's, it's not, um, it, it's 13 and up. And actually I think it could skew even a little bit younger. Um, we've had a lot of 12 and uh, to, it's, it, it can skew up, meaning uh, a lot of the adult readers, because that's most of the reviewers and everything now anyway, um, are really enjoying it, you know, but I, you know, there's a, when you get comments, sometimes every, even somebody says, well, it could have been more sex in there. I'm like, well, not really. I mean, it's, it's a young adult story. I mean, there could always be, but, and I know why <laughs> stories have that, but come on, you know, it's just, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I enjoy the young adult world in terms of writing for it. I, I like interacting with the kids and, you know, story, moralism, all that kind of fun stuff that you can get into stories that are, you know. Yeah. And you teach workshops and you do like, uh, you talk at libraries and things like that. Yeah. I do a lot of school visits when we can too. Um, I have a couple coming up. We'll see if that's going to work out or not. You know, I do a lot of them by zoom, which is, which is fun. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, that's, um, that, that's, it's really, it's important because otherwise, you know, writing a kid's book for yourself is, is not really what, what we're in it for. I mean, the idea is to, is, is, is that these kids are getting something out of it. And um, especially now where life is really kind of hard, it's, it's a good escape, you know, that's why we escape into fantasy, right. So that we don't have to deal with all the craziness around us all the time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you, do you feel like, because I've, I've only done a handful of like library talks uh, and that kind of thing in my career. Uh, but I know a lot of authors, that's like a, a kind of a pillar of what they do. And, and do you feel like it in some ways, does it, does it fill some of that, that kind of, I, I don't know, maybe social niche of, uh, that, that like conventions and things do, or is it, is it more of a teaching sort of thing? Uh, it depends upon what, what it is. Um, I think when we do, when we're going to bookstores and we're doing signings and there's people there and we're talking to them about inspirations for stories and, and how we're writing. Um, 
it it does give you a lot of feedback on things, having people ask questions about stuff and and um, that's really fun. You know, I've taught different kinds of workshops. A lot of times for me, when I'm teaching, um, even at the Tucson Book Festival, I taught a whole thing about writing for comics. And a lot of the, it was all for kids in the class. I mean, everybody in there was under the age of 18. There were a lot of artists and a lot of, and how to break into the business and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it's like mentoring a little bit. Um, And then when I'm doing school visits, it's, you know, it's a break from their day. So for me, it's fun. I mean, like the, they're so enthusiastic about it. Um, if it gets them to, to read, I was a, I had a hard time learning to read. I was not a good reader. Um, it was, uh, I think I had some uh, unidentified learning uh, issues with my eyes. Um, and so it was very hard to read. My eyes would hurt and they'd get tired. And I put the books down and it wasn't until I was probably um, upper middle school, like eighth and ninth grade, where I uh, went to an ophthalmologist who sort of figured out what was going on a little bit. Um, And I was able to actually learn to read more. And I, I think some of the things that I like to just convey when I'm visiting elementary and middle schools is that it, it, it not every, cause there's always those kids who are the perfect readers and they're so great. And they just read every book. I mean, they read Harry Potter by the third grade all the way through. And I'm like, well, that's impressive, but that wouldn't have been me. You know, I wasn't, um, I'd like, I'd like to hopefully be able to, to make it easier for kids to say, Hey, I'm having a little difficulty. Can you help me? Because there's a whole world out there that they're missing, you know, that's so, so much fun as much fun as tv and video games and all that yeah well and that and that's something that i kind of uh, i always kind of complained about when i was a kid and and you know as now as a professional is i feel like we don't talk enough about the joy of reading because it's always in like a learning environment so you have to you have to make it a learning thing and it's like man if you want kids to read into adulthood you teach them what's awesome about it like yeah and 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 just you show them these worlds that are interesting and cool and can fit any sort of person uh and man it's just you know when you when you're just what who did that for you what book did what did that for you was it a book your dad gave you or something or man yeah it was it was almost certainly my parents you know i had very cool teachers i i had a lot of supportive uh kind of adults in terms of when i was young but it was very much my parents kind of you know, providing me with anything that I wanted to read um, and and interest and introducing me to things like like there was a I don't remember what the name of this series was, but there was a series of books that basically took the gigantic complex uh, like novels and then you know edited them down for kids and and I remember my parents got me a set of those. And there was like, there was Huck Finn and there was Count of Monte Cristo and, yeah. uh, and there was just a bunch of them and that kind of got me going. But then once I read those and then I was, then my parents said, oh yeah, but those are actual, there's real books that are unabridged that you could go read those too. Okay. Like I read, I read the unabridged, uh, Les Mis in sixth grade. Oh my God. That's impressive. That's hard. You know, it was, but it was, it was that kind of. It was that encouragement of saying, here's some cool things that are accessible to your age. And then once I finished them saying, oh, yeah, and you could even go better if that if you liked that, you can do better. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And so 
when and and also the kinds of things that kids can read now too, which we didn't have in our day. So for me, it was a little bit different. It was um, it was it wasn't in, until later when I uh, I didn't I, I had uh, I was I was one of those latchkey kids, so to speak, um, where both my parents were gone. <laughs> they were divorced and both working mm-hmm. and never you know it was um, I, there were people around. My brother was around, but we kind of raised ourselves in those days. It was a little bit of a funny environment, and I think that for me. Uh, reading, you know, my mom's pushing of, you know, the Bobsy twins kind of books that were falling apart from my grandmother's house weren't quite cutting it. And, and then when, you know, I would get uh, some of the, um, uh, I'm trying to even remember them all when, when I was really young. And so it wasn't until I got to like, you know, the, the middle school years where I could find Wrinkle in Time, which had been out for a long time, but I just didn't even know these books existed. They weren't on a library in our shelf. And in school, we were reading, we were reading Tom uh, Hupfin and Tom Sawyer, and we were reading a lot of those books. And that, that was, that was great. But I think what, what's happening now in the schools, which I'm, is really interesting to see. And I think great is that Teachers are supplementing books that are now modern day, that are books that are coming out now, books with presentation, books with, um, so that, you know, everybody's seeing themselves uh, either on a cover or at least in, in the cast of characters. Um, and I, and I, I feel like also there's, there's, there's issues uh, being talked about in the books that, you know, that weren't just, um, it was just a different, it, it was just different when when we were kids they didn't have these things i mean if you really wanted to get edgy you were reading the lord of the rings you know what i mean you know that was was edgy or um uh you know what were those books flowers in the attic or there's some of those crazy books that i would you would find around judy bloom books were you know were all the rage and they're still amazing books but um but it's nice now because i think that there's there's such um there's so much out there that's so different that kids get choices and and that's great because everyone has has different things that they want to read uh, you know somebody wants to read about you know you know romance stuff you know the the princess diaries kinds of stuff which are really fun books by the way um you know is is going to be different than the person who's who's reading the unwanted you know or you know those other stories that are more fantasy you know i don't know and i think through the pandemic it's been really good for kids some kids discover reading. I mean, I know like for my kids, they, I, I think our, we spent so much money on books last year and I was like, whatever <laughs> you want, I don't care. And, and it was, it was, you know, the libraries were closed. Checking things out was hard. Yeah. So it was like, you know, we, we ended up getting a Kindle unlimited kind of thing to, to, to give my daughter more. And, and it, it, it's, it was a, a, a really good way to escape. Um, and so I'm hoping a lot more kids are, you know, they do discover that because there's so much great stuff out there right now. Yeah, I think that you mentioned that teachers are finally starting to kind of include things that are coming out now. And I that that definitely wasn't a thing when I was a kid. No, and it's uh, being allowed to. I mean, the school districts themselves, you know what I mean? It, you have a curriculum that you follow. Yeah. And I, you know, teachers do what they can to bring in, I don't know how much there are, you know, and what they recommend. But I've noticed like our kids um, go to public school out here in Los Angeles. And I've noticed like they're really reading stuff that um, there's still some stuff that's that's the the older books, the classics that we all. Right. But they're really bringing in other other stories that 
are more contemporary. And I, I do think it's an area that, you know, I'm not trying to say that the classics aren't important because I know those conversations <laughs> happen all the time on Twitter and everybody has a crazy, you know, an opinion about it. And I honestly don't. I think they're all good. But I also think that it's important to look at what's being written today because there is a level of inclusivity that's really important to bring into the schools, not just into the bookstores and libraries to make sure that that they're, the teachers have the ability to teach what they think is, you know, good for, you know, for, for everyone in the classrooms. Well, and I think that when readers are coming to a book, they, whether it's conscious or not, when I, and I think most of the time it is, un, it's unconscious, readers want to be able to see themselves as the hero or a character in there. And that's not just kids. That's also adults. Yeah. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. So I I couldn't find a ton online about your TV career, and I was hoping you'd tell me a little bit more about it because because uh, I we've talked about it before, yeah. uh, but I I wanted to get a little bit more out of you for it. My TV career is because I'm behind the scenes, so yeah. Um... Which which I think is actually stupidly fascinating. I, I kind of love the I love the mechanism behind the entertainment that we get. Yeah, it's a lot of it's it's a lot of, of what do they say? Hurry up and wait. Kind of it's a lot of work, but it's always rush to get something done, and then you wait to find out you're moving on and doing more. Um, so I came out here, and my first job was working as an assistant at, at one of the agencies at William Morris, and um, it was I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to work in television. I had, uh, forgive me, I did actually, when I graduated school, I went to school in Nashville at Vanderbilt and uh, moved to Atlanta. And I actually worked for CNN uh, for um, uh, Crossfire and Larry King Live behind the scenes as an intern. So that was literally my first job, um, which was crazy and exciting. And I'm not great with arguing politics, so it kind of wore me out on news, um, I, I had a, a good time there. I produced a couple of small specials, um, moved up the ladder a little bit, and then knew I wanted to work in scripted television. So I moved to Los Angeles and um, got my first job at William Morris. And so I, I figured I wanted to work in scripted TV. Um, and so what I ended up doing, I moved over to work at Sony um, and at Fireworks, like I was talking about, and then at Fox Studios for a few years, uh, I guess three, four years. Uh, and then ultimately at G4, uh, which is now part of NBC Universal or was, I should say, because I think it, I guess they're, they're bringing it back now. So I guess I can say it still is. Um, <laughs> but I was there for, I guess, five years. Um, my job was to do two different things. Uh, eventually, I became in working on current shows, which they'd call current. 
and then developing new shows, which was development. So I'd go home every year and my mom would be like, what are you doing now? Well, I'm the director of development of so-and-so. What does that mean? (laughs) This is what I do. So my job was to A, make sure um, on the business side of things, figuring out what things are going to cost. If it was a project that was ongoing, um, I was, you know, working with the producers and the executive producers of the shows, staffing, uh, acting, you know, casting, whatever it was, Um, being a liaison with uh, both the creative and the money from network and studio to executive producer. So my job was to manage both sides, make sure everything was moving smoothly the way it was supposed to creatively as well. So you'd give a lot of feedback on that. And then as I moved along, I ended up doing a bunch of, uh, reality stuff at Fox. Um, I worked with Ryan Seacrest for a while, um, which was fun. He's sweet. Um, and doing a lot of those shows and then went back when I got to G4, it was kind of a hodgepodge of things. So by the time I got there, I had moved up the ladder um, and I was a lot of people's bosses. So a lot of these shows were reporting to me, which was fun. Yeah. Um, but Attack of the Show and X-Play, uh, Comic-Con coverage, which I mean, could you ask for a better gig? And, <laughs> um, and E3, which of course always fell over my anniversary. Um, and so we never celebrated our wedding anniversary because it's always E3 week. Oh. We were always live for like five days, which, you know, it's like sticking your finger in a light socket. <laughs> you know, it's like when you're live, it's, it's, it's crazy. That's kind of the craziest nerve wracking television. But it was, you know, it, it, it was a really, really fun job. And, and my job was really just to make sure everybody else was able, had everything they needed to do their jobs. And they creatively knew what we wanted. And if they were having trouble figuring out how to do it, my job was to sort of step in and, and give them what I could in terms of guidance and all that. And so it wasn't until G4 was uh, shutting down um, that uh, I got to start writing my own stories. And so that's sort of how I got to where I am now. So uh, how do you, I mean, how do you psychologically go through the process of being the center of chaos to being kind of on your own as just a, as a novelist where you're not, e- you know, even when you're collaborating, you're not really working with other people more than a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it has to do with, um, it was a transition. Um, I think after G4, because it was so exhausting, that last bit of everybody moving on and having to shut things down, um, was really emotionally difficult, just to be honest. Um, yeah. I'm still really close with a lot of my G4 friends, you know, Jerry Duggan, who I rarely see these days and, you know, Jessica Chobot and I worked on Firebrand together. So I think it, the way I did it was that I took it slow. Um, Annika, Laurent, Thomas, and I are still partnered and doing stuff on the film and TV side of things. Um, you know, we, we, I, I tried to keep that, but it is a little weird. I mean, you talk about the pandemic. It's like, it's like, that's what it felt like. Like I, I went from having, you know, a million people in my office every day and hanging out on set and chatting about what video game was coming out or whatever to to being in my own office and shutting the door in my house. And it was a little bit weird. Um, I, I think the first year of it was, I, I almost feel like I almost tried to do too much to keep that rhythm up because I was so used to, you know, go, 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 go all the time. I ended up, you know, not, in a good way, selling like, like literally five projects. And then I was like, what am I doing? I can't even, 
you sit down to get them done and I, my mind is on the other four that aren't being finished right now. And, and the ones with Legendary ended up going on Webtoon. So it was like an upload every week. And it was like, what am I doing? I'd be up till midnight just trying to get it done. So it was a bit of a blur and it was hard. It was hard. I miss, I still to this day miss the social aspect of it. I mean, you're an author and you know what that's like. It There is a... Um, you know, you do look forward to those Tucson book festivals when you're sitting at a table of 25 authors and and having, you know, Victoria Schwab and Samantha Shannon and we're all sitting there and everybody's eating and drinking. And and because we're, we're all so used to being alone, we're like, yay, we're out of our cages. We're, we're together. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's it is weird. But um, I have to say the the breakneck pace of, of what I was doing, too, it's sort of it sort of changes your rhythm in life, you know, where you were used to getting up, but uh, I still get up at 6.15 because I got to get my kids going now to school and all that. But to be showered and out of the house by 7.30 and in the car, because there's a 45 minute commute to work and you're finally at your desk and, and then you're in 25 meetings and then you get back to your, and you're there till eight o'clock at night. And by the time you get home, you're like, what did I do today? <laughs> so I have less of that, which I really appreciate. Um, yeah, I do. Um, but I, I still, I, that's one of the things I miss about the conventions a lot is just then going, it's just seeing, seeing people I haven't seen in a long time, you know, but I love seeing people that I've worked with too successful. You know, I see Blair Butler writing movies now and I see Blair Herter relaunching G4 and I, I see, mm-hmm. um, you know, all these different people, you know, Kevin Pereira going back and working there again and Olivia Munn and all the crazy stuff she's doing is amazing. And you see all these people you've worked with. And, and you're just, you know, it's like, okay, you know, this is cool. We've all moved on to go to other places, but we were such a family at G4. It was, um, it, it, that was, that was a really hard one. You know, I'd moved yeah. from a lot of jobs over the years, um, shows that go up and shut down and that was normal, but, but that was a really hard one. Do you think, do you think the, the weirdness of kind of being in the center of all that chaos, like, cause you just mentioned shows shutting down and, and kind of developing these like little family units almost of like coworkers is that, gosh, I feel like that would be very stressful of, of kind of developing these new kind of professional friends every few months or whatever it is your schedule is like. Yeah. Was that really hard on you? Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, you know, everybody goes on to do things and you still, I think it's more the evolution of the the shows and them going sticking around and moving forward and changing. For me, as a as a you know personally, um, I didn't have any issues. I had no trouble if I was shutting down one show. Usually, there was another one coming up, and and people would roll over to whatever show you were working on. Um, shutting down the network was harder. Um, yeah. And then you were literally laying people off in a different kind of a way. Um, which was extremely difficult because then I ultimately was laying myself off. You know, I mean, we were all leaving at the end of the day, um, which it was just a very, um, it was a stressful situation. Uh, but you, you do become a really close knit family. And then, but when somebody's going on to do something amazing, like Gavin Brussell was our showrunner on Attack of the Show when um, I first got there and I had been there about, I don't know, eight or nine months. And I got some calls and knew that he was speaking with Jimmy Fallon. And, and this was right when Jimmy's show was getting ready to launch. And um, I was, you know, 99.9% sure they were coming in to, 
to just steal him away. And, you know, but really that's amazing. You know, that's, you want to, you're rooting for that. And then of course you're just like, whatever I can do to help the, you know, you move on to something and, and then the show changes and evolves and somebody else comes in and takes over. And so, you know, it's hard because you don't see them as much, but, but then every time I'd go to New York Comic Con, I'd stop by, you know, 30 Rock and go see Gavin and hang out on Fallon's set and, you know, <laughs> be like, this is great, you know, because it was so much fun to just see him and hang out and, and in a different environment and see how everybody's getting successful. So for me, that was okay because they were family, but it's like having a kid and you're kicking them out the door and you're like, yeah, go do something amazing. Um, it's different when you're like totally saying goodbye to, to something as special as G4 was. I'm glad to see they're bringing it back. So. Do you feel like your transition from going from kind of being the coordinator and decision maker to being the creative side, do you, do you feel like it gave you like extra insight to being a creative and working in the, like the business? Definitely. I think, I think, you know, for years I was the one giving notes and I was saying, just give me a little bit more time to get back to you. I know you want this answer. Yes or no, or whether we're moving forward on something or not. And then when you're sitting in the chair and you're like, why am I not getting that email? Are we doing this? Or are we not doing this? Yeah, that, that definitely, um, I still get that. I mean, you know, it's, you know, I, I feel it and, and, and getting notes, you know, um, when, when you're trying to work through stuff and, and is, it, it's definitely a learning curve. Um, but I think it's made me a little bit more or a lot more open to everything. You know, I used to, I worked uh, with a guy named Russ Krasnov at Sony, um, and he was one of my first uh, creative kind of bosses who was teaching me stuff. And he was like, there's always a note that's given for a reason. And so sometimes I'd get a note that would come, it would trickle down from a network or whatever, and I was going to have to give this to the showrunner. I'd be like, I, I mean, this is just the dumbest note. Like, <laughs> there'd just be a note where I'm like, do I really have to tell them this? You know, this is not a, she's like, well, it's coming from somewhere. He's like, so what your job is to interpret it with the showrunner and, and make it figure out what it is that they're trying to say, if it's not articulated the right way. So sometimes like I'll get notes from people and um, not my editors typically, sometimes it's even just from a, from a beta reader or whatever. They'll say something. Sometimes it's even just from a family members, like, you know, I don't understand X, Y, and Z or, um, and so for me, even though I'm going, well, that's just the stupidest note I've ever heard. <laughs> I know that it's coming from somewhere. And typically there's a, there's a, um, a, a, a better way to interpret it yeah. and, and digest it and give it. Um, I have learned um, the hard way. The best thing to do when you get your edit memo is to read it through and have your little temper tantrum and set it down and go, go for a walk or do something with the dog or whatever. And come back to it a day later <laughs> with fresh <laughs> eyes. Because I think, you know, that nobody prepares you for that. You know, that first time you're going to get something and you're like, this is great, but here's all my notes, you know. And so there's that. Um, it does prepare you to take a deep breath and get into them. Because even though you really want to go, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. There's usually they're right. And there's something that needs to be done. So Yeah, there, there's a perspective that you have not considered in terms of what you're doing i'm always i don't know maybe i'm almost like too generous to the business side of the art that we do uh you know in this podcast and in my career because you get when when you get a bunch of authors together everybody is going to bitch nonstop 
about all of that, you know, all of that stuff. About the notes. <laughs> yeah, all the notes, all the business side. Oh, they're ruining my vision kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I, I tend to try Do you to feel like they, I don't ever feel like anyone's, if anything, I've never had anyone, I never felt like they were ruining my vision. I mean, no, I've never had that experience. I, I've been, I, I have friends that have, and, and I'm, I'm really, I don't know. Like I, I bounce back and forth between, well, are they right? Or are they being massively oversensitive? You know, uh, who knows? Uh, and I, and I'm sure everyone's had different experiences with that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and it's good to, you know, it's funny because like, um, in my middle grade series for Kelsey, the book that comes out in, in, in March, um, my editor who ended up leaving McMillan, she at, I'm with tour of teen for that starscape. Um, uh, Elaine Audrey Becker, she actually just had her own novel come out. So she left cause she was publishing. Um, she had said to me, she sort of challenged me cause I had given her the cast of characters that were going to be in it. And she, it's a, it's a military magic school. So in it, she said, what if there was a kid who, and I don't like to use the word handicapped or disabled because I don't feel like um, they think of themselves as handicapped or disabled. You know, that's the word that I think that, that we've thrown on it. But um, a kid who was born without a hand or a foot or a this or that. And I, I was a little reticent in the idea of trying to, to build the storyline around someone who was like missing a, a leg only because it is a magic, a military school. So they'd have to be running laps and we'd have to, then I have to get into the whole, I wanted this to be authentic about a kid who, you know, who, who's just born missing a hand. And so I was like, okay, I can, I'm going to do this. And so it was a lot of research and it was going to work, but it was her idea. And it, it when she threw me the curveball, I would, she was challenging me that it wasn't just a book about, you know, trying to make everyone feel, I, she was like, make everyone see like they see themselves. And, and, um, this is something where, how does, how does that actually become a, a, a benefit, you know, something that's, that's bigger than they are. And it was, it is the best thing that happened to the series. I mean, it's not the, it's not the, the, the main protagonist is Kelsey, but it's, a, it, they, they get into, uh, Fianna's into, um, military sort of like squads right troops and so the four, the four of them go together and um and and Niall is is was born without a hand and in the in the old celtic legends um in in the irish mythology in the earliest time period of ireland the king lost his hand in battle and he could no longer be king so it's actually seen as almost like a curse it's a problem for this kid yeah. and it 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 was such a great edition because now I'm writing book two and I can, I'm, I'm doing even more with it with him. And a lot of what I did and what I found out in my research is that, you know, when, you know, kids are adaptable and, and adults too, and they don't, if you're, if you're born missing something, it, you're not really missing it. Right. It's just, do you, I mean, I, I've met these kids who, who literally uh, a little girl was born without any hands and she has the best penmanship in her class in like the third or fourth grade. And she, 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 it, it's amazing. You know, you just, you adapt, you, you know, you change. And so, so it's almost like society putting on this pressure on this, this kid in the story and in, in the real world where they don't see themselves as any different than anyone else. And in a weird way, it's almost like, you know, they have their own magic power, right? Their own thing they're, they're better at. And so, but that was Elaine. 
So, you know, she was the one like, I'm challenging you to do this, see if you could do it. And that was, that was amazing. And so, you know, that was, um, that's, that it's, I've had great experiences working with my editors on that, that level, you know. Well, and part of, part of the job of being an author is taking that feedback and figuring out, figuring out which things are going to be shoehorning, which will feel like shoehorning to the audience and which things very naturally go into what you're already creating and and being able to pick and and figure it out and then lace it all together i mean that's it that's one of those skills that maybe we don't talk about enough no and i think it's really hard too because sometimes i mean everyone has a different what they call process right you know some people just prance some people outline some people do both i kind of do both. I, I try to, and when you're writing series, you know, you kind of have to outline once you're, you know, eventually if you're, especially if you know, you're getting, you have to get to an end game. Um, it, it is a uh, Avengers end game was called that for a reason. You got to get there. You got to get to that end. And it's, so there's definitely a hybrid. And when you're talking about characters and their physical and emotional um, development through stories, um, whether they're kids or adults, it plays into who their character is. So, it, you know, it you need characters sort of have to bring out the best and the worst in each other in order to drive the plot to have any fun. Otherwise, it's kind of boring, mm-hmm. especially if they're always agreeing and they're always the same, right? So, you're trying to develop something. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I'll get halfway through a book, I'm like, well, that character's not working. So either it's going to get cut or it has to be completely redeveloped from, from, from page one. Um, and, and that's, that's hard. So yeah, when they throw you something like that, you're like, okay, well then how does this change plot and how does this change story? And, um, it definitely, it definitely does. But, uh, for me, it's kind of, the fun part of all of it is just trying to um, make the craziest stuff happen all the way through. I mean, everybody has a different pace at what they write. And it's it's interesting to me because I come from TV. So I do feel like a lot of my stuff feels like it's it's happening in three acts. You know, I'm, I'm getting to, you know, some some authors spend more time um, setting a story halfway through. And there's, it's not that there's less action, but there's action and then a lot of, of, of world building that occurs. And everybody has a different pace to their writing, which is why some people like one kind of author's books and other people like others. I tend to try to, things tend to happen very fast in mine. Yeah. Um, I can slow them down and let them breathe. But for me, if they breathe too long, I worry that I'm going to lose people at that point in the story and maybe that's just and that's that's got to be your tv training you know because that's that's what tv's all about is the keep on moving oh the plot's got to keep on progressing at all times yeah and for good and for bad i mean in some uh, it's funny when people read stuff they're like okay i'm gonna set it because i like phew that was exhausting you know what i mean breakneck speed and um like with the color of dragons you know because also we were running out of time we needed to get the book delivered and and when we had a lot of people we had a few cooks in the kitchen on that one it took a lot to whittle down what everybody was saying for about for us to um be like okay we need to get this in and get this in. i mean you know temple hill does make movies and tv shows and so there was a there was there we had to sort of keep everything in mind as we were doing it you know and and exactly what their notes were so there was a lot of time spent on that and and would i have loved to have another eight months to go in and add even you know 
another chunk in one section and sort of build up even more sure. But uh, it it definitely things tend to move at a very fast clip when I write. Them. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you do you find that you've come to really enjoy kind of the uh, the comics and the novel world, or do you? Well, I mean, clearly you do because that's what you're working in. But do you do you have the temptation to kind of bounce back and maybe write for TV or film? Well, I I do uh, sometimes. I um, you know I, when I first left. G4, I had a pilot script I wrote that was optioned. Um, it didn't move forward. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I had thought about staffing on shows and that kind of thing. But um, I have a lot more fun creating my own stuff, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I really didn't, I, 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 I would be very excited about working on something of that, that I was a part of creating and having it move over into film or TV. And I do have some projects that I'm actually producing right now that are on the film side of things that are different. That just stuff that I've been working on for a really long time with other authors that I, or rather I shouldn't say other other screenwriters that um, I've been helping and partnering with over the years. But as far as like diving into you know a writer's room, unless it was really my own project, I don't know because it takes it's it's a full time job, and if it, I would have you'd have to give up. Or, or, I mean, I have a family like you, you know, I have, I, I, if I was, if I was, if this was all I was doing, sure, I could be up till three or four in the morning and get four hours of sleep and, and, but, you know, I got to make my kids lunch in the morning and I got to get them out to school and (laughs) picked up and driven here and there. And, and I think something would suffer, you know what I mean? And um, that was the thing that I found when I was doing too much all at once. Cause at one point I had two projects with legendary on the comic side um, and two novels at the same time, I was trying to get it all done in a single year. And it was the comics were ongoing series with webtoon. Um, and, and so every week there was stuff to do on it uh, three or four times a week for both on top of me, just trying to get my writing done. And, you know, you, you know, you're, I I don't know about you, but I got about five hours of serious writing in me. And then it's like, okay, I gotta, gotta stop, you know, uh, a few hours and I would stop and then go write comic scripts. So it was, it was, but it was, it was too much. Eventually something was starting to suffer and I was feeling it. So I feel like if I was going to get back into TV, it would really have to be on something that was something I'm working on. Right. Something that you're kind of, that's, that's your baby. Yeah. Something that that's like, like if, if, you know, right now I know Temple Hill's working on the color of dragons and I know like if that went being a part of it or something like that, if it was a series versus a film or whatever, I I would love to be a part of that. Um, But again, it it would have to come down to, you know, really um, because I would know the world, you know what I mean? I would be in there, but it's a team of people. You'd have, it will, you know what I mean? It's not like writing all the scripts because writing a film script takes as long as writing a book. You know what I mean? It can take years to put those together. It, it, it needs just as much attention. I mean, in some ways it's interesting because writing, writing a compelling script can be, I guess they're both really hard, but there's so much pressure on dialogue. And that's a skill that I'm grateful to have been a part of because I know when my dialogue sucks. 
I know. Like, I'm like, okay, this is, this is lazy dialogue. I've written real crap here, but it's on the page for the moment and we'll revise it. Um, because that's a skill that I really learned in, in working in that, because, you know, you know, you know, and you feel the difference, you know, I mean, any, any viewer can sense when they feel like, okay, that was a cop out line. Wait a minute. Can I get another reading on that? You know, cause you know, people, it's just, you know, when it's not something that's going to evoke an emotional response, um, doesn't always have to, but at least has to be in the voice of the character. And you have to really feel like um, it's worth dialogue because you're stopping down the story to be like, okay, these two characters are going to talk. What they say has to be really friggin' important. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, it's just as hard to write that. Um, and, and so there's a, you know, people, sometimes I feel like people think, oh, well, writing a script, there's less, there's less literal words that go into it. You're setting a scene, there's less world building, but there's actually just as much, the best scripts I've ever seen are brilliant and brief. They, in their scenes, descriptions, because they immediately evoke an image in three or four words. You know, if you read um, I, my friend Bo DeMaio, uh, he wrote on The Witcher. Um, he was one of the writers on The Witcher for the last two seasons. He wrote on Star Trek. He's wrote on the originals and all that. And one day I was like, can you, can, I need a script uh, for a sample for something. And he sent me one of his Witcher scripts. And I was reading it and I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, how can somebody be so brilliant in like three sentences? And it takes me five paragraphs in a book. You know what I mean? To get out the same kind of, you know, there, there, there are people who are, um, incredibly gifted and you can see it on the screen when you're watching it well people tend to assume that writers are writers and that they can do any kind of writing but it's it's so much of a every single type of writing requires a different kind of skill set um and and a lot of people don't really understand that yeah uh, and it's kind of it's kind of fun because you do get a lot of writers who do have a very broad skill set and then you get some writers who are extremely good at one thing and they could not write themselves out of a paper bag in a different, you know, kind of style, you know? Yeah. Well, and for, for, uh, for a good reason, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, um, it is definitely something where you're, I think everybody's personality is reflected in what they're writing and also what they like to read. I mean, it's the same thing. So when you fall into a story and you spend, you know, two or three chapters you know, learning the world um, and, you know, wandering through these characters and getting a little bit about them, but not necessarily feeling like you're on the edge of your seat. That is one kind of, and and people are good at that. They draw you in with their storytelling. I mean, um, there was a book I read called Daughter of the Forest, and I can never, I know I'm going to mispronounce the author's name, but that that book spent so much prose that was so incredibly beautiful. And you just, you fell into it. And I could never write that. I mean, I just would never be good at it. You know, I know what my, I know what I'm good at right now. And if I tried to, to, to do that, I, I just don't think I would be very successful at it. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, it's a thing you have to learn and really concentrate on. And it's a, it's a gear change uh, that, yeah. that you have to kind of give yourself time for and and study and learn it's you know it's it's kind of just it's moving around within roughly the same field but you're still like i said different skill sets well yeah and you know like um 
uh, the adult fantasy, like your stories and Bob's and the action built in with these incredibly, uh, incredibly built out worlds. The, you know, the world building is so it's, it's a character in its own. And it, 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 that's a huge skill. I mean, I, I feel like when I'm, you know, I look at the world that um, J.K. Rowling's built in Harry Potter and what Rick Reardon built, although it was pretty much our world, but it was the demigod world in, in Percy Jackson stuff and, and everything he's done. And it's brilliant for me. I, that's the world that I feel really comfortable in. Like I can, I can, I love to build the crazy, Yeah. but, but the, um, the adult aspect of when you're pulling in from so much about it's patience, it's having a, a skill of patience where I literally have to drag myself back to it every time. So yeah. I tend to write scenes of dialogue, like a script, and the crazy arguments that are occurring, or the crazy whatever world, whatever scene stopping uh, plot thing that has to come out there. And then I go back in and I fill in the other part. Because, you know, and it's funny, because Bob's always like, oh, you know, he loves that part. Like, he'll sit down, he's developing these whole cities like you and like <laughs> building these whole things. I'm like, okay, I'll get back to that part. I don't know what the room looks like. I just know what has to happen <laughs> in the room. <laughs> so it's sort of like opposites in a weird way. I think, I think there's some of that. It, you'll see in the color of dragons, like it's like different parts that we both excelled at in, in different ways. So. Oh, that's really cool. Well, hey, I have kept you for a very long time, but I, I like to end this uh, by asking every guest a question about what's the last meal you ate that blew your mind? That blew my mind. Um, the, the last thing that you, you that you still think about a little bit that you kind of want to go back to. Okay, so um, there's a restaurant out here called Sugarfish, and my mother was in town this weekend, um, and uh, it's a sushi place, and um, it's one of those places where you go in and they make it for you. Don't you don't get to really order. You say, okay, I'll have this. Is how hungry I am. So they pick the menu for you, right? And you and I can't even remember the name of the kind of fish. It looked like yellowtail, but it wasn't yellowtail. And they put some kind of lemon zing thing with ponzu sauce on it. And I seriously was thinking about it this morning. Like I may have to go back to sugar. I haven't, I haven't been to the restaurants in so long. We've been ordering in because of the pandemic. Um, I literally can't stop thinking about that. So I have, I love sushi. I eat a lot of sushi. I live in, you know, in the Pacific like you. I mean, it's it's everywhere here. And it's kind of my my favorite go-to. So that's, although every time you post a picture of barbecue, <laughs> yeah, there's a place here called the Outdoor Grill that does the most amazing ribs. We had those two this weekend. Mm, oh. it, it was a weekend for gluttony. I ate. I love ribs. I ate everything, you know, um, beef and pork. I mean, it was terrible. We, you just, yeah, I try not to think of the poor little animals. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I always like. I would very much struggle going trying to go vegetarian. Uh, but you know what? I'm, I'm very much on the bandwagon that the moment they can make affordable meat substitute that I can't tell the difference from, I will totally switch. Totally cool with it. We, we were, we typically eat plant-based, um, but I, the way we've, we've tried to do it in our house. Cause my daughter, bless her heart, came home one day and she's like, do you know how much these are contributing to global warming, to, to climate change, to this? And I'm like, okay, 
So we try very hard. We have been eating um, not impossible, although I, that one's fine. I have a, a, a wheat allergy. So I have to, sometimes they use wheat as a substitute in those meats. And so that doesn't work for me. But there was another kind we've been eating that's sausage based. But the way we've been doing it is if we're going to a restaurant or if it's a holiday weekend, we can have whatever we want. Yeah. So that's what we decided to do. So we still try to eat. I mean, we still eat eggs in, in our house and we just don't grill out as much as we used to. We don't, we don't go that direction. We've limited it. And I think I think for us, it feels like a good balance between the two. There is these sausages that are plant-based that we have them here that um, they have a spicy one and they are really good. They're kind of like when I, uh, I so miss our trips to Ireland. We used to go, we haven't been able to go for all the last two summers and we go for a few weeks at a time and we had to cancel our trip again this summer, which sucks. But they have bread pudding, you know, like the um, sausage with the barley in it. And I'm like, and these taste just like that. And they're really good. Um, I'll I'll send you a picture of them so you can. Email oh yeah, yeah. Send me send me what kind they are. I'll I'll give those a try. They're pretty good, but so that's the way we've been kind of trying to do. It. But you know what? You can't you can't go going cold turkey for anyone. Let's be honest. It's 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 tough. It's impossible. Yeah. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah. We all have to live a little bit. Yeah, that's and that's where I'm at. I'm uh, that my living tends to be through food. And there you, go. you know, I, it's, it's not great for me, but I'm trying to be better about it. And, you know, you know, we all have to, we all have, um, we all have the, the, that, that, that thing that, what is it? My grandmother used to say, we all, um, uh, to each his own, to each his own source of, evil. Yeah. you know what I mean? We, we all have our thing, you know, it's not just to each his own, but it's to each his own thing that they, 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 they want to dip into that gives them that 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 pleasure of, of living and so nobody yeah nobody should be able to tell you i can't have my hamburger but at the same time we have things we need to address in the world and so i'm do we're doing our part just by trying to eat a little less when we're not at restaurants and that means i don't have to cook so that's okay <laughs> that was author erica lewis Thanks again to Erica for taking the time to chat. Her new book, Color of Dragons, is available now from your favorite bookseller. Look for my conversation with her co-author, R.A. Salvatore, later this week. You can find links to Erica's social media and some of her books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books directly from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.